So welcome back to the Property Strategist Podcast. I'm back with a fantastic episode today. Uh, he is a African business mogul, um, an MD of Landmark Group, which is a real estate service office company. Um, he has a background in architecture uh, and property development, and has served over 500 clients um, over five continents around the around the world. Um, he's also into philanthropy. And he's a husband and and a father of two. Um, he's also uh, one of the investors on one of my favorite shows, Lions Den. Um, so without further ado, I'm introducing Paul um, from Nigeria, uh, CEO of Landmark Group. How are you? Thank are you very you? much. Thank, thank thank you very much. It's it's great to be on your show. How are you? How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for taking the time out to to talk to me. Um, I, I, just for some context, this is this is a really important episode for for us. Um, we are, for context, um, three uh, property investors, developers in the UK. We share our journey. Um, over, uh, we have shared our journey uh, in property investment um, over the last five years in the UK, and we've made a decision over the last. It's always been in the back of our minds, but in the last sort of twelve months, to start connecting with. Um, others around the world that are doing uh, amazing things um it's always been a passion and 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 a sort of goal for us to connect back home to the motherland all of us are nigerian and to really start talking to and have a dialogue with those that are doing some amazing things uh back home so for us this is a huge honor um i know a lot of our listeners um from the diaspora are really interested in understanding more about what what happens back home how it works and things like that and um, hopefully in this episode, we get to touch on on those things. Um, and then also a little bit about your story as well, because the more I dove into your story, the more I was fascinated. Even the fact that you were actually from, you know, from London, that like you, you, was, you was was born here. Yeah, it was already quite an interesting, um, uh, an interesting uh, thing to know. So, yeah, I mean, first yeah. question for me was, um, how was it? How was it growing up? in London in the 19, obviously I think you were born in the 1960s, but growing up in the, like, the 1970s, 80s in England uh, as a Nigerian, like how was it back, back then? Yeah, well, it was it was fun. I, I suppose um, a lot of Nigerians, um, um, or shall I say foreigners, especially um, of African descent that grew up in, in London in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, would have witnessed a lot of change. Um, so, you know, I come from a fairly normal, family. Uh, my father is a, was a diplomat. Um, my mother was worked with the BBC as a, as a fashion consultant. Um, we we had a fairly middle-class background. I was born in the mid-60s, as as you've hinted. Um, mm. It was my birthday a couple of days ago. So, ah, happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so I, I, I went to, to primary school in the UK. And, uh, you know, like most people who went to primary school at that time, I was probably one of a handful of black people in the school. Um, so um, I, I grew up, I grew up in that environment. Um, um, but I grew up from strict Nigerian parents, Catholic yeah. parents that um, treated me sort of different from my friends 
parents treated them. <laughs> they had they seemed to have more latitude and oh. and more strength to do what they, they wanted. And we we had to do homework and brush our teeth at the right time, <laughs> the right time and stuff. But anyway, um, my father being a, a, a working in the embassy and being a strict Nigerian decided um secondary school time my brother and I should go to Nigeria. So we we came to Nigeria to do our boarding school at Federal Government College Lagos at the age of 10 whilst we lived in the UK. That in itself was a real was a real turn up, right? Um but um you know I got through the five years, you know, it was hard for the first couple of years. Um because it was the first time in Nigeria and then I enjoyed it afterwards and made some some of my lifelong friends then in secondary school. Came back to do my A levels in the UK, and then um, decided I wanted to go back to Nigeria to do my university. Yeah, so did that. Went to UNN, read architecture, and um, you know I was popping back to the UK for for our holidays and stuff. So um, so I had an on and off love between Nigeria and well between basically Lagos and and London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so it's so fascinating. I mean, even when you talk about you know from my generation, like music. Um, and the part that's played between Lagos and London, artists coming between there. I know back 10, 12 years ago, there were so many artists that would come and from from Nigeria um, and come to come to London and perform um, before they really are as big as they are now. They would come years and years ago. And just there's always been a, a really strong connection between London and Lagos. Even when you look at the independence, some of the people that was part of that they you know they studied in that study in London and then went back so um there's so many stories of great people that have have, have grown up in London and then ended up in Nigeria and, and done some some magnificent things yeah uh, absolutely so I mean some of the linkages between London and Lagos you know and are are all well, between England and Nigeria are Nigeria's biggest exports you know so sports so sporting wise a lot of Nigerians in, in England, um, you know, but you look at boxing, you look at football, look at MMA, um, and then you look at um, then the music-wise as well. You know, they, it's one of the big exports from Nigeria, so there's a huge uh, influence in in London. My my children at the age where they enjoy all that. Yeah, yeah, I do as well. Absolutely, I'm, I'm surrounded by it in Nigeria because you know, we have a competition center, and then um, fashion. It's the same thing. You see, there's a lot of sort of African influence in our Nigerian dressing in London. Yeah. And then lastly, um, food. Um, that food has really made its transition as well out of Nigeria into the mainstream UK. I mean, I must admit, I, I grew up eating Nigerian food. Um, my <laughs> children not quite the same, but... but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm probably, yeah, probably a bit the same as well, to be fair. <laughs> Um, do you know so what I wanted to touch on actually because you mentioned it was um your father um you said he was very Nigerian centric and that was quite interesting because from the generation that I was in a lot of our parents they kind of frowned upon Nigeria we never um was taught about it in a good light you know a lot of us have come to back to it or have interest in it through probably the music as you mentioned the fashion the sports um, and people like you that we can see are doing things. So it's like, uh, yeah, what, what influenced your, your 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 dad to be so like Nigeria-centric and almost wanting you to, most people do primary school here and then do secondary school, but you ended up going back to Nigeria for um for secondary school and, and then university once you decided that you want to go back to study again. So how was he, you know, when it came to Nigeria and and his, his outlook on Nigeria as a whole? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. So, you know, generations have changed and, and I can see how you struggle with the concept. But, but you know, in the 70s, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were obviously in a foreign land. You know, unlike today, you know, my kids think they're British, right? Yeah. Um, and, and their only linkages with Nigeria are the things that we've mentioned, you know, fashion, sports and food okay. and stuff, music, right? Um, in, the, in the 70s and the 80s, Nigerians in, in, in the UK were Nigerian. They just happen to be in the UK, mm. even if they got British passports. Mm. So, so from when you look at my parents' generation, um, you know, they came here either to school or to work in the embassy or, or were transferred from, from multinational companies. And they they were always home was never UK, home was Nigeria. So um then parents wanted to give their children, you know, a, a chance in life um and to to see how 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 what I tell my children now, how real people live, right? <laughs> but um um, so it, so yeah, that's what it was. It was so it was Nigerian. He worked with the Nigerian embassy for a start, so that says a lot, right? Yeah. Um, but um, they were very Nigerian. They they spoke um, Nigerian languages at home and stuff like that. Um, although we were brought up in English, but but um, you know they always wanted us to have a link. And you know um, there was a time when during Christmas we had to everybody had to pack their bags, go to Nigeria, go to the village. You know, celebrate Christmas. <laughs> you know, come back. Um, we didn't like it then, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely. I think that is something that um, you know, I think you, it, it would have been so lucky for you to have the opportunity to just go back home uh, and and almost like you said, like it was a generational shift, right? Like you actually felt Nigerian, but that you was only based in the UK, and I feel that a lot of us want to get back to that in a sense there's a there's a prize and there's a there's a uh, advantage for us to go back that we want to kind of tap into so the fact that you was doing it regularly um it makes sense it, it, it kind of gives context to how you was able to get so comfortable with um the idea of going back um you mentioned that yeah you end up going back for um to study architecture in the you know university of nigeria i believe um yeah what 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 was what was that um thought process like and was you always into property then, you know, from the architectural background? Or did you just, yeah, what was that What was that decision like? How did you come to that? Well, I'll give you the honest answer rather than the intelligent answer. Yeah, so, <laughs> I like that. So, so the, the honest answer, you know, as a kid, you know, I liked all the things kids liked. You know, I liked to play. I liked my freedom. I liked my time. Um, I tried to combine it with my academics because it was important in my household that, um, that we concentrated on our academics. And when it came to sort of, choosing you know i and you know i do feel that it's so unfair on young children that you know at age of 12 13 you're choosing between arts and sciences you're literally deciding your future for the next 80 years of your life when you're not in a position to do that so there's something about the education system is not quite right but um you know so i i you know i i got to 15 years old i have to take my gcscs and stuff and and um at that stage when you're going to a levels you have to choose three subjects right um and when you're taking what they call jam which is the the examination you take for university here you choose three subjects right um and I thought to myself I'll choose the three subjects I'm best at Mm. so I I chose an odd set of subjects which was physics geography and economics which I was I was extremely good at those three subjects and fairly mediocre in a few others um and then I looked for a course that could match those and looked for a university that could match those obviously being a foreigner um, University of Nigeria because of the name stood out right yeah. um, and then the next thing was course what course to choose um, and architecture was one of those courses that matched the subjects and, and that's basically how how I ended up in architecture mm-hmm. um, 
it was it was then in the school of architecture that I began to develop an understanding and a and a likeness for for property and buildings and not just the physical part but the business part and and the people part you know many people mistake sort of the built environment departments or architecture engineering as as sort of buildings and technology but it's it's more about people mm -hmm. it's more about you know where where are people meant to live where do they go to work how do they go to school what are, what do they do when they're in hospital um, so these buildings are shelters for people um and i i liked the thought process mm -hmm. and uh, so I, I developed certain instincts and I was fairly good at drawing as well um, for, for building. But I, I quickly realized that my big interest was in the business of building mm. as opposed to the, the technology of building. Ah, okay, cool. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's almost like uh, you can you can build a building, but you need to know who it's for, you know, how yeah. they use it, you know, based on that and then natural use. As a developer, you're always thinking like that, you know, how would they move around? the room what would they be doing how would they be living that's that's amazing that you started picking up that school so early um yeah. how, how was it there how was it did you have fun in university was it uh, again oh. no how, how it would have been is it partying all the time is it relaxing what's the what oh, was university like too much <laughs> far too much fun. See, you know, that is one of those things nobody prepares you for it right especially uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you go into the university that's on the campus right so nobody really prepares you because all your life you've been sheltered you've been told what to do when to wake up when to go to bed what to when to read you know you had study times you had libraries that you were forced to go to during periods of times and you know you had to go to lectures because your seat would be empty if you're in, in class right yeah. But when you get to university, you realize nobody forces you to do anything. Right? So it takes you a good year or two to adjust. Mm -hmm. but, you know, um, the only thing that forces you is the determination to succeed. Yeah. And and at that age, you don't always have that determination to succeed. Success for you, you know, and let me speak for myself, success for me at that young age was having a great time and, you know, just yeah. you know, sowing my wild oats, right? Um, yeah, then yeah. you realize, yeah, towards the end of the academic calendar, these exams you have to take and, <laughs> and then you that you, you've got to try to pass right yeah yeah been there. been there yeah yeah so the first time you're very close to the edge uh the next time you, you you're a little bit more reasonable with your time and how you yeah. divide it and then the longer you stay university the more used to it you get and if if you're if you're there long enough you do well at the end and if yeah. if you're just as quick enough you do well at the end if you didn't just quick enough <laughs> um, you have a few courses you've got to take again yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that reminds me a lot about my university experience so yeah to be fair i don't i was you but most people university experiences like that apart from the people who were who were very free from a very early age right yeah. um but um you know i lived a very sheltered life for for up to the age of about 15 yeah. so um so i had to adjust but it was fun i had a lot of fun in nigeria met a lot of good people um traveled to a lot of places in nigeria you know it's funny i i traveled more around nigeria when i was in university mm -hmm. than when i finished right um how come you know well, because I had friends in different universities. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, you know, I ended up going to a lot of different universities for parties and for debates and, and different things and sports. You know, I, I, I was in the athletics team and the football team as well. Um, so so um, I traveled a lot around the country and yeah. met a lot of people, knew a lot of places. And it was, it was a great time. I wouldn't swap it for anything else. And I'm glad I made those decisions then. Yeah. Pardon my ignorance, because, again... There's a certain perception you you have of Nigeria when you when you grow up, right? You just told it it's just this. Obviously, we know from we go there as well. Of course, you go there, you'll visit. But how was it traveling around like in the 1970s? You said that you went to different universities, different cities. Was it was it easy? Was it was it safe? Was it 
or was it that you were yeah texting so, around or you have to be careful when you when you... yeah so you know the great thing about university and you you would you would know this as well is that you're fearless during that period of your life right yeah true that's true <laughs> right that's true. you do things that you would never do now right yeah. that's true. so so you don't see things like danger the same way yeah. Um, so I must admit, I felt safe. I went to places, I don't know how much you know about Nigeria, but I went to places like Kafang Chang by rail and yeah. by bus. I went to Sokoto, Medugri, you yeah. know, um, the, the Benins and the Potokots, the western areas, Ibadan, Ife, and, you know, different parts of Lagos. And, and um, yeah, I felt safe. It was only having come out of university and, and when you start getting more responsible and you have reasons to stay alive that you then realize that some, things, some of the things that you did were crazy <laughs> right I remember, I remember once leaving leaving Enugu which is where University of Nigeria was at mm. about midnight to go to Ilori in Kwara State um, for a party wow um, with, with a few friends it's not, it's not it's not all just seriousness ties and and money, you know, you you're just a normal guy back in the day. Yeah, yeah, we absolutely went through the same normal um, iterations. Everybody went went through. When I, you know, when my children were in university, I was I was saying, look, I've been there. You know, um, you know, just f- figure out a way to leave there with a good grade, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's going to stick with you for the yeah. f- next twenty years of your life. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Luckily, I I, uh, I got my act together late enough and uh, in good times. <laughs> um but tell me something about um any mentors you had like growing up like was you did you look to anybody um as what you've become now would you kind of envisioning people in your own time that you're looking at or yeah who who were your mentors like growing up yeah so so you know like like everyone else i grew up in phases right so obviously my big mentors and the big people i sort of idolized when when i was sort of three or four years old you know changed when i was sort of 14 15 right and changed when i was 24 25 and changed when i was sort of 40 and changed today right so so i've I've looked at different you know it's it's musicians and sports people when you're very young and as you you grow up a little bit you you learn a little bit more about sort of businesses and and politics and you, you start you start sort of following sort of different leaders and thought processes and themes and theories. And then you look at some businesses and successful businesses and you then say to yourself, you know, when you you have to dream sometimes and you have to dream about if I manage this business or I manage the business like this, how would I how would I sort of cope and what, what things would I do? So so my my influences changed as as my phases changed. Um what what, what 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 about that period when you was like in university though like just uh, I mean not even just at university just after so when you'd you'd graduated and you had that knowledge of you know space awareness architecture and you wanted to start coming into that phase what what was that phase like who who did you look to at that phase or were you looking at more UK or European based business people or or was it more African based business people yeah in, in all honesty it was probably more european and um, sort of global i looked at a few world leaders and exactly. you know i started getting an interest in in certain the certain sort of evolution and 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 the world obviously your parents pay, pay, play a huge influence in your life um so that's why i'm always very careful how i behave around my children um because you know if, if your parents did it then it means it's acceptable right <laughs> and if, if they, you know and if they didn't it means you're not meant to um so you know it was parents and uncles and aunties and people close to me but fortunately for me or luckily for me i had a senior brother and a senior sister i was the youngest oh, wow. so i also i had um a senior brother to look at when he 
he graduated from university my sister graduated um i thought to myself i must graduate <laughs> right um so, so i went through that that sort of phase but immediately after university obviously life sort of gets a little bit more serious i came back to the uk came worked with an architectural practice and my real influences were were the big sort of architects and big property company leaders and and stuff and i sort of looked at them and wondered how they think they made things work i remember my boss at the time a guy called anthony barber you know, actually great architect with a great sense of humor. You know, I, I looked at his his own swagger and the things that were important to him and and stuff like that. Um, at the time, um, you know, London was going through its own sort of building metamorphosis, and my my architectural practice was in Stratford, and um, Stratford was going through huge gentrification and changes. Um, so, you know, a lot of my influences at that stage were around buildings and the property markets and, and the people that ran these things. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And talk to me about that, that phase as well, that phase of coming back from Nigeria, um, getting started in, in, in your architectural practice and then moving over to be an executive at, I think it's Regis PLC. What was yeah. that? They were a global, global service company. How, yeah. what, what was your role there and how, how was the experience there? Yeah, so I'll tell you a little story to 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 bring that home. But so I worked in architectural practice um, for three years. Um, I, you know, after about a year of working in architectural practice, I realized this is certainly not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, I didn't want, you know, um, in in university, I designed cities and airports and hospitals and stadiums. And I got to this architectural practice. I was doing window and bathroom modifications and kitchen modifications, and you know, sort of not very interesting things being sent out to some very cold areas measuring things um it just didn't it took a lot of creativity away but i i quickly realized i had to finish what i started so i knew i had to do my rba and the royal institute of british architects um, certification so i stayed the three years to finish that and um, but immediately i finished i i moved to a property development company um which was uh bovis at the time and and bovis is uh, a construction development company they own piano ferries or piano ferries own bovis they developed the Waterloo International at the time. I worked with a guy called Patrick Crotty. He was a, he was a senior project um, director. And, you know, that's probably where I learned the most about sort of construction techniques and buildings and, you know, the technology behind it, but also the thinking behind why certain things are done. Um, and it was a really useful time in my life. Um, you know, it spanned three years as well. And, and I realized that even though it was essential to learn that, and at the same time, I did a, a postgraduate degree in construction management, I realized that it was important to to do what I loved, and that was the business end of buildings. Yeah. So I I came across this guy called Mark Dixon, who who was negotiating at the time with with um, Bovis um, for an office in 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 London, and I met him, and I was part of the Bovis team, and he he took a liking to me. We were more or less age mates. His parents had just died in a motor accident, um, yeah. and he he sold his father's bakery for I think two hundred thousand euros at the time. Um, to start this business and he he wanted a global business and says look I want to be in in the seven continents so I want one person from each continent um, so he asked me if I wanted to join as the African you know as African by by face and nothing else right and name and um, you know um, but even this guy was serious about it so he, you know you got a guy called Yob Dawn who was the European guy a guy called Bob Gudra who was a South American you know um, um, Rudy Lobo from India you wow. know so he, national team <laughs> yeah he recruited from seven different continents that we were working from his dining room table but this guy was oh, wow. driven. Wow. Yeah. he was he was driven and and um his idea was literally just to 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 change the way people access the property market 
Um, so he wanted to create basically hotel office hotels, right? Um, so you use it when you need it. And my job was the property and logistics job. So I had to go around the world looking for buildings and opening these offices um, with no money. And wow. that was, yeah. So during my time there, fast forward, you know, I, I visited 69 different countries. Wow. I opened 176 different offices. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, it was fun. Early, early mornings, late nights, very you know, red eye flights, red eye economy flights, I must say. And um, <laughs> it was it was it was good fun. But, you know, I, I, a significant part of my youth was was missed. And, you know, in the seven years I was there, um, you know, he turned this company into a multi-billion dollar company. Wow. It in, yeah. Stock exchange for one point four billion dollars a wow. few years later. You know, so we, we had some challenges in between, but but the whole idea behind it, that's where I learned the entrepreneurial spirit, you know. I mean, every day this guy rolled the dice. And wow. I thought to myself, you know, this thing they call entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurs are they're not they're not they're not made, they're born. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's some guts that comes with it and there's there's a whole mindset that comes with it and yeah. you know, one has to bring that out. You know, I'd gone in, in between, I'd gone to business school, I went to London Business School and did an MBA. And uh, and a whole series of things. I was very cynical about business school early on because, um, you know, I went into quite young and I had to run a business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they teach you all sorts of strategic and theoretical stuff that. When, you know, when, <laughs> yeah, I was being debunked every day when yeah. in the work. Why was it? Yeah. Yeah, I think we've all been through that. You know, as as people from Nigerian background, it's almost like we're taught education, 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 and then when a lot of us have passions for entrepreneurship, business is like. This doesn't apply. I studied business and IT at university, and it's just like the business element yeah. so outdated of like what's happening yeah. in the market. Even the technology side was outdated. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's that's that's so interesting. It's crazy because um, as I listen to that story, I'm I'm like I I get I kind of I'm getting a as I'm going through the story now, I'm getting a good good idea of why you are the way you are in a sense because although that wasn't your business, you was traveling around the world. To, to god knows where different countries and literally with no money opening offices you know yeah uh, although that was under your business name or you know you had a share in it or whatever it was like you, you've done it i mean in theory you've done what you need to do to be successful even though you didn't undo it under under the umbrella of a you know a company for yourself if that makes sense so so the fact that you you did that must have given you huge confidence to be like you know wow i didn't think i could do that you know you, you travel across the world boundless I, you mentioned the fact that you um you you lost a lot of your youth but in a sense i mean the fact that you're traveling that much and experiencing that much you could only do that in your youth you could only do that in that in that time really um and then for you to have the balls to go into places and 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 essentially you're, what you what you guys are doing was almost doing like co-working space from from my understanding it's like you're almost opening spaces like even the model itself, like it sounds so good because it's like you're meeting a demand in terms of the, the entrepreneurs and the young small businesses in that area, and you're also helping the, the hotels make more money. And I guess in that sense, you're making your own money. So I don't know how the structure would work, but in that structure, you'll be making money as well. So that's that's very very fascinating. Um, was there any favorite like place or story for one of the offices you opened, or is there any place you ended up like, like how did I get here? Like, how am I in this country? You know? <laughs> all the time. All the time. <laughs> I remember my first trip with Mark Dixon. Um, we we're going to Santiago in Chile, and um, Chile, 
in Chile, yes. Yeah. And <laughs> and so we, we were going on one day and we we're meant to come back two days later, right? And it was a 13-hour flight. Yeah. Um, so we, we get to the airport and we turn right in the plane and get into this economy seat. He's actually sitting in the middle of the three seats. So I'm thinking, you know, by then, you know, we'd run this business for a couple of years. And um, I thought, you know, by now he should be flying business class and, you know, taking care of himself and stuff. I thought I was looking forward to traveling with him because I thought I'd be spoiled, right? And <laughs> and, and uh, so I, I, I think the tickets were something in the region of 200 pounds at the time yeah. um, by economy. And it was about 2,000 pounds by business class. And, yeah. you know, so I asked him, like, what what on earth are we doing sitting in the economy seat um, um, when we're, we're traveling for two days? And, yeah. and um, you know, we're doing some real business. We're going there to do some real business. So we were invited by a, by a company to come and partner with them to roll out service offices in South America. So it was, it was a big job we were going to do. We are going to negotiate the deal. So I thought yeah. we should arrive fresh and stuff. Yeah. And he, he said to me, um, you know, if I gave you $2,000, and said you have to spend it in the next 13 hours. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, or I gave you two thousand dollars and said you can spend it over the next three days. What will you do? I said, of course, I like to spend it over the next three days. He said that that's why we're flying economy, right? <laughs> so we, we we can spend the change when we get to Chile, oh, right? Yeah. And in Scooter's word, we did, you know, we 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 moved around in comfort, we stayed in a lovely place, and um, we ate in lovely places um but it just makes your mind at rest so you know one of the things that it taught me my time in regis it, it taught me you know you have to know when things are important and you have to know when they're urgent um you also have to know where to make your bank your buck of you know get some bank yeah. right uh, a lot of people spend silly money on appearances instead of you know spending it in a way they can multiply where those appearances become a given um so that was one of the things I learned. Um, the other thing I learned was delayed gratification. Um, you know, nothing good comes immediately. Mm-hmm. And anything that comes immediately and comes easy um, doesn't really stay for long. Yeah. Um, so so sometimes, you know, um, you have to sweat things out. And, you know, you made that point that, you know, I, I learned how to work hard, not for myself, but for someone else. Um, so when it was time to do it for myself, I was prepared to climb mountains. Because I said to myself, you know, if I did all this without actually making money, then if I'm doing this for myself, then I ought to be able to walk through these walls, right? So it, it sets you up to to just do do bigger things and harder things. And, you know, in this entrepreneurship journey, it's simply not easy. No matter how people explain it, um, we, we, we talk about these things after the fact as if we just sail through them, but... You know, every day is a challenge. You know, getting up in the morning is a challenge. Going to bed at night, if you even have a night, is a challenge. Um, I I scratched through my time in a business school, but you know, I I was doing three jobs at the time. I worked in the post office from from eleven p.m. to four a.m. I got up at seven a.m. in the morning, so I had like two and a half hours sleep if I got home on time. You know, went to work, worked almost a full day, came home, managed to have dinner. If I was lucky, I rested for half an hour went to the post office and I did this for 12, for what, about 18 months flat. Um, that stretched me, right? Um, and at the, at, at the end of business school, you know, I still had a 47,000 pound bill, right? To, to pay the school. Um, so, so, you know, that stretched and I then had to take on another job because of that. So, so you know, it's like an elastic band. The more you stretch it, the more you have the capacity to, to cover more. Yeah. Um, so that that was a big big lesson, you know. That, you know, disrupting one's life 
may be painful today, but there's a lot of gain tomorrow. So, you know, I've, I heard someone say disruption is a necessary element of social change. Yeah, if if you're going to change things, um, you're going to have to disrupt things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in your life, you're going to have to disrupt things in your life. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Thanks, man. I, I'm just I'm just soaking it all in, and I'm I'm glad this is all recorded, so I could I've got it for life to to refer to. Um, but that story there, I I, I can really see understand how. I've heard you say a lot of times about how you roll the dice every day when it comes to to business. Um, that story there, um, it sounds like a movie, to be honest. Um, but um, it, I can see how you've uh, almost developed that kind of tough skin, um, that sort of figure it out kind of mentality, and yeah, no limits in a sense. So, so, so that's very interesting. Coming into landmark. Did you did you come into landmark knowing exactly what you wanted to do, or is the business today different from what you envisioned originally? Yeah, um, so similar and different um, in in more ways than one. Okay. Um, and and to tell that story, I perhaps have to tell another story. Yeah. So story my same. early days, yeah. <laughs> so my early days in Regis, um, you know, Mark didn't really have enough money to pay all of us, right? And he basically said, "Look, guys." Um, we're running this business on a shoestring, but we'll be rich later. So he wanted us to take 5%, a 5% stake and in lieu of our salary, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, four out of the seven of us origi um, or that originally started um, took the 5% yeah. and three of us didn't, right? I was one of the three that didn't take the 5%. I, you know, I had a mortgage to pay, a family to feed. I had real issues. I had bread and butter issues. And um, these other guys were a little bit more settled. So, um, you know, I had bills to meet every day. Yeah. So, um. So I didn't take it, but it didn't stop me from working hard. And, you know, he paid me a fair, fair wage and stuff. And I enjoyed I enjoyed working and I enjoyed the growth and, and the traveling and, and stuff. So um, obviously, when we floated this company for 1.4 billion, it was in the New York, New York Stock Exchange. It was a big celebration and stuff. The guys who took 5%, you know, got a $70 million check that day. Right? Great. Yeah. So, you know, so you I got to your head thinking, damn. Yeah, I got a pat on the back, right? Um, but you know, and it was you know, this was a marathon. It was what was affected at the end of a marathon. Um, but you know, I'm happy because you know, in all honesty, if I had a seventy million dollar check then, you know, I was in my late twenties. I'm not sure I will be here today, yeah. and I'm not sure I'd have had the the zeal, the the, the even the the determination to do the things I'm doing, right? Yeah. Um, so so um. So yeah, so that's that's basically how how that that sort of panned out, um, you know. So so I'll I'll say I'll say when when we finished, um, I then said to myself I needed to do some work with. Um, um, I was to do my own thing. If I was going to work this hard. I was going to do my own thing. I started writing my business plans. Mark said he would help. Um, I had some clients in 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 the Far East in Tokyo, um, and I thought to myself, well, let me let me try and satisfy a need that Regis wasn't satisfying, right? So Regis um, worked on, their client base were big businesses, multinational businesses, people that wanted to be in several countries at once, right? Um, and wanted to do it all in one bill. And I thought, you know, there must be, there must be a whole series of people who need, of younger people or, or people not as successful yet, who need advice on property. And I felt I knew the whole value chain of property from design to construction to management operation to delivery I, I just understood the whole thing in just the areas i'd worked and I, I thought i wanted to do some advice 
So um, but I wanted a nice office, so I, I went and I rented. So Mark, to be fair, Mark gave me a lot of money, uh, uh, which was a lot of money at the time. He gave me half a million pounds and said, you know, go out there and run your own business. I raised another half a million pounds from HSBC wow. um, through the small business fund um, thing that was run at the time. So, you know, I was loaded. Um, but but, um, but this, this is your early 30s or tw- late 20s? Or? This is my late 20s, yeah. Late so, 20s, yeah. you had a million pounds in your account. Already, yeah, yeah. Well, half of it was a loan, right? It was it needed to be paid. Okay, so it's, it's a HSBC business loan, yeah. It was a business loan, not grant. It was a business loan. Okay, no, it wasn't a grant. No, it was a business loan. It was a soft loan, but it was a business loan all the same. I had to pay it back. It was very minimal interest, um, which is why I banked with HSBC till today. Because, um, <laughs> it's not in life. So um, I went and I I opened an office in Mayfair. Yeah. Um, and um and waited for the clients to come through the door. But you know, life doesn't work like that. They just don't come through the door, right? Um, and then the other the second mistake I made in life was in business is when you open a small business, it's very different from a big business. So you don't advertise in the same, your clients are not in the same places, right? Your clients are not watching Bloomberg or reading the Financial Times, right? So I was, I spent a lot of money advertising on Bloomberg, the Financial Times, did some videos, did you know, and they just weren't there. People were not walking through the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it very hard, not just getting customers, even when I got the rent for the office and tried to furnish it and stuff. Um, people just don't trust you. Some of it is, you know, you're, you're a young black guy. Some of it is you're just young. Yeah. Some of it is, um, you know, you're, you just don't have enough experience or expertise behind you. People just don't want to trust you. I remember the first person that came through my doors um, had governments as a client and said, look, I've run my business for 20 years and you want me to subscribe to you, or you've just literally opened your business and you have no experience. Um, so I thought to myself, if I have this problem, then several people must have exactly the same problem. So I decided to modify my my business to, to the service office business and say, look, what I'm going to do, I'm going to provide the office, the call center, the answering center, meeting rooms, um, accounting services, um, graphic services for small businesses that want to get bigger, don't have time to hire all these people and get all these places. And once I did that, my business changed automatically, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I then expanded into different countries. So from London, I expanded into Frankfurt, expanded into Madrid, expanded to Prague, expanded to Brussels. And then in in 2000, I went to New York. And so that's when it really... Sorry, I read. I read. I don't ever want to cut in to the story. But is it? How would you just when you say coming into these uh, uh, cities, were you just just catching a plane there and talking? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I say you roll. To be an entrepreneur, you must roll the dice every day. Yeah. So I would literally look at the map, look at population trends. Crazy, by the way, that's yeah. quite crazy. Yeah, watch the news and people are talking a lot in these cities, and these cities are sort of growing, and a lot of people like you and I. Oh, you know, I wanted cities that were sort of commercially vibrant. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, so I did some research, but you know, your research day is limited. You're going to libraries and stuff. There's no Google in those days, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, so literally, yes, I was jumping on a plane. To be fair, I had some experience of that with Mark in Regis. Yeah, you. We literally jumped on planes, didn't know where we were going. I just looked at the city. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I learned when I was at Regis is, is how do you figure out the right part of the city to be in, right? Yeah. So there's certain industries that have developed, and like the hotel industry. They just know. If you look at sort of four or five star hotels, they know where to be, yeah. right? Um, and they've done all the research and they've made their own mistakes. And if you go to any city in the world, 
right? The reason why people go into the sort of the Hiltons, the Marriott's, the Four Seasons and stuff is because they're brands that you know that if you go in there, you get a certain level of service. So I just literally targeted those hotels and said, wherever they are must be good, right? So I'll look in those areas, mm. right? Because that's where the international visitors come. And I took that a step further in hiring people for my offices. I thought, where would I get these people from? So I didn't use traditional sort of agencies or, or recruitment adverts. I literally went to the hotels. And I sat in the lobbies and watched people, how they performed. And I said, you know, the thing about hotels is that most of the staff are good with international people. They usually speak more than one language. They're used to working for low pay. They used to work in odd hours and they work extremely hard, right? Yeah. So they were good targets. So all I needed to do was find the good people. So I observed, right? And I tapped people on the shoulder and said, how much are you earning? Can I pay you to come and work for me? Here's my dream, right? Some bought into the dream and some didn't, right? But um, it was the easiest way to expand. And that's basically how I expanded. Wow. Um, and when I went to New York, I found out that a lot of people are like that. You know, people are just driven by the desire to succeed. And, um, you know, desire is probably the biggest element of one's character that enables you, allows you to exceed, succeed, right? Um, if you have no desire, you just don't achieve it. And you see it in sports. Um, so in, in, you know, sports is probably the best way to, to the, you know, you see, if you look at whether they're athletes or say football players, you know, the best football players are not necessarily the the um, the most creative ones, yeah? They're the ones who are prepared to do more than the next, right? Work as hard as possible and and thrive and, you know, work, break through boundaries. And some of, when I was growing up, the most celebrated players were the ones that worked hard. They were not, it's not like now that a lot of them are the creative ones. So, so the celebrated players, you know, people like Lampard that they talk about today and Gerard and Vieira and Roy Keane, they barely had talent. I mean, these guys literally were workaholics with with decent talent, yeah, right? Yeah. And just made them so much better yeah. than the people who are more talented that were not prepared to work, right? Um, so, so yeah, so, so that's how I sort of funneled through, made a lot of mistakes, you know, got a bloody nose in a number of places, but, but um, you know, it was a path to, to growing up um, in the business. Um, so that's how that business sort of changed. Now, I got to a point, so we all know what happened in September 11, um, in, in September 11 in New York in 2001, and I was in that building, um, and, you know, we lost a lot then, and, um, you know, I look back and, I say it was the big turning point in, the, in my business because I came back to the UK and we're, one, we're a British company in New York. We didn't receive any compensation or anything. We're treated extremely badly. Yeah. Um, I had to even set up some funds to deal with some of the lives that were lost. Um, so I used a lot of my my personal um, monies to to sort that those situations out. Came back to the UK and I thought, you know what? I'm a foreigner in another man's land. I need to, I need to find my own land. I need to find a place where... People don't judge me by my color, by the way I speak, but um, judge me by what I can contribute. Yeah. Um, I ran into this friend of mine who had been working in Nigeria. He'd gone to Harvard Business School. He was working in private equity and he came on holidays to the UK and he's come to work with me um, to my office while his, his wife and family were out there shopping. And he said, you know, this thing you're doing, you can do it in, in Nigeria. And I thought, oh, come on. I hadn't been to Nigeria since I'd left university, mm -hmm. apart from just holidays. Um, and he said, look, come on holiday and see. And so I came and I realized that the country was a different country. It was a lot more serious country. The banking sector was was beginning to bubble. The telecom sector was growing. Um, you know, the technology sector was this. And there were a lot of hardworking people. Everybody looked like me and spoke like me, right? Um, maybe my accent was slightly different, but, but um, you know, you walk into places and, and the first thing people notice about you is, um, is who you are. 
not what color you are, right? Um, you know, so you are not judge you are not judging it in a different way. So I thought to myself, you know what, maybe it's right. A lot of international companies were still a briefcase working in, in Africa at the time. They were coming and going the same day or the next day. And I thought, you know what, I, but I didn't want a Nigerian business. I want an Africa business. So I simultaneously, I decided, I raised a little bit of money and sold my European businesses, all of them apart from New York and London. Wow. And just, and packed my bags and said, I'm going to set this up in Africa. So I simultaneously, I opened an office in Lagos for the West of Africa, in Nairobi for the East of Africa, in Johannesburg for the South of Africa, and in Cairo for the North Africa. And then we pressed the button and said, let's go. <laughs> and then... That's another story after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here, we're here for the stories, but I think again, just to just interject, it's just it's just crazy. I think I think you know that period of time when you was traveling around the world, helping to build your friends' business is so crazy. And obviously, that that payout where you know you didn't get, you can see the fire in your belly from that point was just like I'm, I'm just I'm going to be relentless at this point. Um, yeah. Why, why did you look at opening offices? Obviously, you want to be international, I guess, or, or not international. You want to be all over the continent in terms of, like, offices and stuff. But, you know, for example, like, Johannesburg, I think we, we hear about that's quite um quite modern city as well. Um, mm-hmm. Nairobi as well. It's, it's on the come up. But North Africa as well. Like, it just seems like, wow. Like, <laughs> those places in the world are even places that you were even scared to go to just, into, just even to visit. But you're actually opening offices there. And you're saying, I want to, I want to do business there. What was the idea around not just doing a business in Nigeria, but doing business for Africa? Like, what was that thought process like? So, so this is where sort of formal training and business school and stuff helps, right? Um, so a lot of what you learn is not necessarily relevant. What it does give you, it gives you perspective, right? And it gives you sort of templates um, and makes you reason in a certain way. And one of the things that I thought to myself um, at the time, coming into Africa, I thought, you know, these are all different countries and different cycles of development, right? And and I knew from my entry into Europe that when one office did well, another office did badly. It helped the one that did badly. It helped me survive, right? Yeah. Um, not yeah. everything does well at the same time. Not everything does badly at the same time. And and you then also have things to compare, right? You could be to count and compare. So the problem with one office is that you, you don't compare and you have nothing to count. Mm. I don't know, did you play table tennis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty good too. Back in the right, day. Right, good stuff. Even if you say so yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so you know anything about table tennis? Can you, you imagine you're you're kicking around with your friend, you go on holidays, you're playing table tennis, and you know, you're not counting, right? You're just knocking the ball from one end to the other, right? After after a certain time, one of you says, All right, zeros, let's start, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're a lot more serious in how you play, you're a lot more deliberate, you're a lot more calculated, right? Um, so life is like that, right? If you don't, if if you can't count it, it doesn't count, mm. right? So, you know, I, I just learned in life that you need to always keep score. Mm. Um, so one of the reasons I thought I'll open multiple offices is so I could keep score. You can compare people, you can compare cities, you can compare growth, and you're keeping score, and it pushes you. Everyone pushes the other. So that's one. Two is cycles of development. Is you don't want everything to be down at the same time or everything to be up at the same time. Three is just learning from each other is that when you have more than one thing, you can learn, right? Um, you know, it's like you go to different schools. If you've been to two or three different universities, you're always going to compare. And you're going to, if you're going to set up your own university, you're going to take the good from all the, all the three that you went to. And you're going to know these are the things you don't do because this is the bad, right? Um, so that's, so I was a little bit more intentional when I was coming into Africa. And I thought to myself, you know, 
I'd roll the dice again. You know, I'd sold my businesses. I put every single penny in. You know, in all this time, remember, I had gotten married. I was I started having children and stuff. You know, I missed the birth of one of my kids. And, you know, I, I sacrificed a lot just to to sort of give this in a, a chance to succeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I was going to countries I hadn't been to before. But because I've been to a lot of countries around the world, I could relate to a lot of the inadequacies and a lot of the opportunities in some of these countries. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah, so so after the four set the four countries, I then started infilling in between. And you know, look, we had a bloody nose. I opened an office in Libya. The building got bombed during the during the Libyan war. I you know I went to the DRC and um, I lost almost everything in the DRC in my hotel room. I went to Angola and opened an office and you know borrowed a huge amount of money from a Western bank. Opened an office for Exxon Mobil and got called by by a, a government authority um, who took over the building. And, um, you know, luckily just gave me some of my money back. So, you know, I had a bloody nose in a lot of places, but, but you know, also had successes as well, right? And and we bought good pieces of land in different places, in Kenya, in Zambia, in Zimbabwe, and obviously in Nigeria, in Ghana, and did well in some countries. You know, I had a bloody nose in South Africa, by the way, um, you know, and it just reminded me of 1970s Europe um, at the time. Mm. So, so um but I was glad I did it in many places and I learned a lot of lessons and, and it, it told me one thing. Um, by 2015, I realized that Africa was, you know, was a continent. It wasn't a country. There were different countries and different cycles of development and, and different sort of themes and different cultures and different languages and different political setups and, and geography and the, even the way people thought and behaved and worked were different. Um, and that was good training. And it was good fun learning all of that. Um, and then I realized that generally to do a property business where property was a service in Africa, you had to control the property. You just couldn't do it like in Europe because there were no, the laws were not strong enough and, and the policies and the, the, the legal platforms were not strong enough um, to, to provide a property service in a building you didn't own. Mm. So that's what kicked off the ownership part of the business. But one thing I did realize in Africa is it had a lot of deficiencies in finance and human resources and infrastructure. So I thought to myself, you have to put everything in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need property that's large and you need a platform that's large enough to take all the swings and the blows and stuff. And you needed to find a way to put all the things in one place, you know, offices and shops and leisure and lifestyle. And at the same time, the borders between sort of business and leisure were blurring out as well. Mm. So, so you know, you know what they say about property, find out where the people are going and get there first. You know, in property, you generally have to predict the future. You have to predict trends of where people are going and what they want to do, how people want to use property, how people sort of live and operate yeah. um, and provide for that in advance and then wait for them to come through the door. Yeah. Wow. What, what, what a unique perspective you will have on 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 property development operating in different continents how people live is that is that is that what would you say would, would be a, your, your biggest thing that you you started to understand that if you was going to be really be the successful in 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 having a business in in Nigeria or in Africa you had to own the full scope of the land the building that you are going to acquire and then also um, be able to service that with the different kinds of, you know, uh, buildings that you'd have. So some for leisure, some for, for residential, some for commercial. 
was that the biggest sort of takeaway you got from traveling around the continent like you had to do that but do it differently in different places if that makes sense yeah yeah no absolutely so you know there's something that people say success leaves clues yeah right so <laughs> I, have a, I have a really good really good mentor he always says that all the time so yeah okay yeah success leaves clues so if you travel around a lot and you allow yourself to immerse yourself in in the areas you travel you see things are successful and they're clues and you take them you put them in your pocket and they live with you all your life mm. right and you just need to know when to bring them out yeah um so experiences are, are you know someone's asked me what's what's the thing you've learned most in life if you could go back and change certain things in life and i say you know it's it's experience mm. um I would always underestimate knowledge and overestimate experience. You know, when you're young, you, when people tell you, oh, I've been here before, this is the way to do it, you just, oh, God, come on. Yeah. You know, you, because you're intelligent, you're smart, you've got the world at your feet, you think, well, you know what, your knowledge base is good enough to run things, right? But, you know, when, you know, experience is just such a huge thing. If you if someone who's lived something, you don't have to make the mistakes they've lived. Yeah. And if someone's done something before, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just need to look at the clues and you need to follow those, those clues and you achieve your own success. So I, th I think the big thing I learned traveling is, is that, is especially in Africa, is, you know, Africa generally, and I, you know, before the Africans, you know, cut my throat here, but mm -hmm. generally Africa is about, or then maybe 10 years ago, was about 10 years behind Europe, mm. right? So everything that happened in Europe 10 years earlier was coming to Africa. Wow. So it gave us a real opportunity to predict the future in Africa, right? Mm -hmm. um, right now, it's probably five years behind. It's not as much as 10 anymore, right? So one has to look at a different sort of perspective. Um, and I said, I said to myself, you know, one of the key things in Africa is just be excellent. Just do whatever you do. Okay. Do your best at it, right? Because excellence, excellence is a currency in Africa mm -hmm. because it's not everywhere. It's getting better now, but it was very poor 10 years ago, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that influence of just doing things well, long-term planning and, you know, and, and finding ways to not just create the world, but how to manage it and how to multiply it are very important principles in Africa, um, because you can lose everything in one day and you can make everything in one day. So one has to be a little bit more deliberate. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so those were the things I learned and those are the things I practiced and, you know, the journey is still on. That's it. And and so today, landmark. What 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 do they? What do you guys do day to day for, for businesses or for for clients? What, what, yeah, what so, do you do day to day? So today, today, you know, we, we describe ourselves as you know we've sort of metamorphosized from a property development and service business into into a platform developer, yeah. and we're a destination developer. So what we do basically today is we provide the business leisure lifestyle platform, um, in on our locations. Yeah. So um. We, we make our money, not necessarily through fixed rents. So property developers will say, well, whatever the square footage is, multiply by a number, and that's who I am, right? Um, my my unit economics of business is people. So the more people that come to my place, the longer they stay means the more money they spend because they have a lot of things to do yeah. and make sure they have a nice time, so treat them well. Yeah. And when they leave, they'll tell other people about you. Yeah. Um, if we did those four things right, we'll be incredibly successful. Yeah. get the people in keep them there for a long time make sure they have a great time and tell other people about you um so we do everything in in our business um in our, on our platform we have leisure retail hospitality businesses health education um everything's in one place um so so um yes multiple streams of income do you, do you have many um 
international businesses wanting to collaborate with you on your offices and, and your spaces as well? Is that is that a thing that's happening like big companies yeah yeah absolutely so you know we're home to a lot of people you know we were home to people like microsoft google dell were, were the first port in africa at the time oh. um currently we're home to some of the world's largest companies um procter and gamble novartis um you know pwc um some large some large companies um work on our platform and work live and play on our platform yeah. um so so um we, we mix with everyone um, from the Fortune 500 to the local companies, to the regional companies. Um, so everybody's important to us and we we try to treat everyone the same way. You don't always succeed, but you try. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And the last uh, two questions I have were, what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs looking to enter the African market? So I know you have the show, um, you was on the show um, Lions Den, which I want to I want to talk to you about slightly a little bit as well. But um, you know, what advice would you give for for new aspiring entrepreneurs from the diaspora? I want to come back and start businesses in in Africa. So, so the first thing is meet a need. You use the experiences that you've had um, living in in a developed environment, um, and figure out what are the, what of those experiences are are required in an emerging market, right? Um, and then go there and do it in a way that nobody else can. Mm. Um, so that would be the advice, right? Um, don't expect the same treatment, don't expect the same re reward, um, and don't expect the same hurdles, right? Um, but the principle of doing something properly is is, is very important. So, um, and with time, um, it will succeed. So I'll say the next point is delayed gratification. You yeah. can't come work in Africa and and be a successful entrepreneur if you want to make your money all in one day yeah. if you do then you join politics um, and you probably will succeed in doing that right but yeah. um so so you have to you have to be focused on building stuff and changing other people's lives if you change people's lives you'll be successful and if you look at the most successful companies in the world today are companies that have changed people's lives in multiple ways right um yes a lot of it's around the digital infrastructure area but but you know, so whether it's people like Twitter or Amazon or you know, um, or Google, they've all changed people's lives. Um, and you know, in Africa, you just need to find things, and you know, a lot of lives to be changed. By the way, um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And the hurdle of changing lives there is a lot lower. So you could be extremely successful yeah. if you focus on changing people's lives. That's great. That's great advice. That's great advice. And also, um, with the show, um. The lions then how did that come about quickly like how how was that you know what, what, you know how did they reach out to you what was that process like and then also some of the people that you've invested invested into how how have they been i mean you have to go through more detail but just to understand how that's been investing in their projects and how that's been for you now accomplish what you've accomplished now going back to the youth and and helping other young startups come up yeah so interesting you know so so i mean obviously um, well, first of all, how how did I get into it? I used to be a big fan of Dragons, and I used to watch it all the time. Um, and and I and I I just loved it. I I you know I, I like thinking about entrepreneurship. I like listening to how people think and what they dream about and how things go. So that was very important to me. Um, I never thought I'd be on a show like that. So I I had a friend who who um Peter Jones who 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 I'd met and had and was on the Lions Den program um, on the um, 
Dragons Den program. So when the franchise moved to Nigeria and they were going to rename it Lions Den, the people who got the franchise, the studio, the studio company that got the franchise were searching for people. Mm. And they got some refer, um, referrals. My name came up. I get a call from out of the blues and says, look, there's this program. Do you want to do it? Um, so I drag, drag us there. And immediately I thought, oh, gosh, that's lovely. I watched that program for 15 years, right? Um, but I thought to myself, I didn't have the time. Mm. I just couldn't do it. Um, so my initial answer was no. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be a public figure. I, I wanted to do things quietly and, and you know, keep my life. Um, so so I, my initial answer was no. Um, but with time, I thought to myself, um, you know, they came back again and said, look, they're looking for people who are running real businesses and and they wanted a certain kind of person. And and, um, and I should think about it. So I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, I've always talked about changing people's lives and I've always talked about trying to give back and stuff. And I thought, what better way? Um, I convinced myself to try to do it. And, and um, yeah, so that's how I got onto the show. So I said yes. And we did the maiden few episodes and i found it was great fun absolutely great fun that show is a fantastic by the way fantastic show like you, you have to make sure you keep doing loads of seasons and keep going because <laughs> it, it's just even when i came across it i was just like wow this actually exists like this is this is like yeah it's for me it's it's just it's crazy that show is crazy but yeah you know, it's, it's good but i'll tell you the, the other side of it is the funny side is you know, so so people who watch it, they recognize. So I meet people and they say, "I know you," and 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 it, after some time, I realize that it must be TV, it must be from Lions Den. Sure. So I get pitches in odd places. You know, oh, so I stop in an airport lounge or a hotel or a restaurant or something. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so what do you think about this and that? And then, oh so, yeah, yeah. You have know, some terrible know. ideas as well. You're just like, oh my gosh. I, I know. And half of the time, you're thinking, "I wish I could just say get a day job." Right. <laughs> Part of the but, part of the part of the story, man. Part of the part of, part of the process. Oh, good. Yeah, but, but I, you know, I, I I made seven different investments on on so far on in the two seasons we've done, and um, I've lost my money on some, and I've multiplied my money on some, Amazing. and others. I'm waiting for the delayed gratification, but some of them have been really, really good and really, really fun. That's fantastic. That's fantastic to hear. And um, just rounding up, um, how do you manage your professional commitments with still maintaining a healthy work-life balance and being a devoted family man, husband, and and father? Like, if you can give us some advice on that as well, we could. Yeah, I know it's, it's a really, it's a really good question. You know, I'm not even, I don't even know how successful I am. Um, but since my family is still together and, and my business has so far survived, then then at least I'm, I must be doing something right. So you know, I always say. Whatever you do, make sure you're passionate about it. Yeah. So make sure you 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 have knowledge in it, you're passionate about it, and you're willing to make sacrifices. So if those three things tick, then you find out that it's part of your everyday life. So when you're running a family and you're keeping friends and you're you're trying to remain healthy and stuff, it's all part of I don't see what I do as work anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I'm working at 2 a.m. in the morning and I you know, it's all part of my social life as well because at the same time I could play at at two p.m. on Monday, too. Right? Um, I don't live by the clock, um. So, so I mix everything together. I make sure I I do things I enjoy. I make sure I talk to people I enjoy talking to, um. And I tend to choose the things I want to do and the things I don't want to do, um. And just make sure you live. I live by my word as well. So the hardest thing to do is to keep your word, mm. right? Because it's the only thing you have, right? Um, that you you can take to your grave. Um, so, so um, some of the principles that I try to practice is, is the principles of just making sure you try to change other people's lives for the positive. You make sure people you meet remember you. 
and you leave them with some memories and um you make sure you know you treat your neighbors you you want to be treated so um with those principles um so far so good yeah. um the people who love you suffer the most because yeah. um the other people who who you say well they'll understand yeah. <laughs> right um but you also need to try to be deliberate about making time for them yeah um you have to remember that you're you stay awake you know the things that you do during the day are for the to enable other people to sleep well at night yeah 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 now i'm happy we touched on that bit as well because listeners uh, are going to really benefit from this and um yeah and this is hopefully one of many interviews that i do with you and other people um in the, in, in the continent um that are gonna are doing amazing things that can inspire us and and also give us some direction on how we can do the same so thank you so much um and till next time guys this is the property strategy podcast stay blessed stay invested peace make me swim make me Keep my cool, but tonight I'm